Hi, I'm Steve Cousins, and you're listening to CinePod. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft, and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, Ilya. Hey, Ben. How's it going? Here we are. Uh, here we are on Zoom again. Woohoo! Hey, Ilya, who is on the show today? Uh, we have Steve Cousins. Yeah, Steve Cousins, who was the uh, one of the DPs on Station Eleven. We had him on the show before, and he shot Wildcat, Ethan Hawke's new uh, directing effort that's coming out in theaters. It's a pretty awesome uh, movie. I hope everyone goes and checks it out. And uh, I have to admit, ultimate culpability. And that's that even though we switched to doing these on video, uh, I, I thought I had hit record on the Zoom session and I I will go ahead and blame operator error. I will take uh, the fall. I don't believe <laughs> Zoom goofed, but we did not get the video of Steve Cousins. Sorry, Steve. Sorry to everyone who wanted to see oh, video no. of Steve Cousins. I think you have to strip down naked and I'm going to get a bell and just start chanting shame as I march you through mm. Sherman Oaks. <laughs> Yeah, no, no I'm no. definitely not going to go all Game of Thrones on that, but <laughs> but I feel bad. I do feel bad because I feel like Steve deserved better, but it's a great interview and he's awesome. And I really hope everybody checks out Wildcat. It's a really cool movie. It, it looks great. Uh, his work is fantastic. It's very, uh, very lyrical, very creative. It's one of those movies that'll entertain you and make you smarter. Check it out. Ooh, all right. That sounds awesome. I'm totally in. And now, Close Focus. All right, so Ben, it is our close focus time of the show. What's going on this week? What do we have to talk about? Well, as we're recording this, the AMPTP is set to go resume negotiations with the Screen Actors Guild. And God only knows what's going to happen because it was less than two weeks ago that they all walked away from the table angry at each other. I, I can't imagine that they bottled that anger that quickly, but... Money talks, as they say. So uh, I, uh, these companies are losing money and they're also looking down the road. And uh, we just kind of wanted to, um, th- there have been several articles I've read about this, but we kind of wanted to highlight that the strike, uh, it's not just affecting movies that haven't been made yet. It's affecting how the studios are releasing movies that are already made and they're, <laughs> and they're moving stuff. And so yeah. I would point people to a deadline article by Anthony D'Alessandro that literally came out today that is talking about the latest casualty of the rescheduling because of the strikes. Mission Impossible 8, also known as Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 2. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's a uh, a big push of a full year for Mission yeah. Impossible. And also Tom he, Cruise must be like, why is it all? Why do all my movies get pushed now? Like like uh, the Dead Reckoning Part One got pushed like three times. Has Tom Cruise not suffered enough? And in A Quiet Place, A Quiet Place, the uh, prequel, three months. So it's interesting. And I think that it has a lot to do with the fact that I think these movies are counting on some star power to bring out the people, to be, bring out the people, you know, the the promo work, all the stuff that goes yeah. into getting people out of their comfortable couch at home and driving down to the movie theater in order to pay their, their hard-earned money to watch a movie in a communal experience on a big screen. I think yeah. that uh, the, the studios are looking and angry 
angering the theater owners to a certain extent, too, because these are movies that the theater owners had been counting on for revenue. And when the studio says, hey, remember those movies we promised we're going to release at these times? Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. That's... Well, and it's like post COVID, a lot of these theater chains are lucky to still be in business. And we kind of thought that they were making a comeback. You know, Barbenheimer gave every uh, gave them all a nice shot in the arm. Uh, currently, we've got a couple of pretty big hit movies. Obviously, the Taylor Swift Eras Tour is doing great, although there was a steep decline after the first week. Um, but still, it's going to do well. And then Killers of the Flower Moon, the new Martin Scorsese movie, doing pretty well. But I think that a big push behind this isn't just that actors aren't able to promote their movies, but they're kind of spreading them out. They have less movies, so they're spreading them a little bit more thinly, meaning they're, they're you know, we're not going to see a bunch of movies released on the same day competing for our, our tickets because they're just going to ooze them out to try and keep the business afloat. It's, it's definitely a business move. It'll be a dribble, a dribble of movies. Yes. Uh, Between now and who knows when. Well, I can tell you when, when the uh, the strikes end and people get back to work and actually a significant amount of lead time passes because we've been now so far in arrears for all the stuff that's been shelved and Mm. put on hold or just flat out canceled. Tons of tons of movies and TV shows like were in the middle of being shot when the strikes hit and they just went on hold. And it's like, man, oh, man, I hope, you know, like all your actors uh, lived and uh, didn't substantially change their appearance during this downtime, you know, like didn't gain or lose a bunch of weight or gain or lose a bunch of hair. I guess they could shave if they gained hair, but you know, they. Your point's well taken. Yeah, it's going to be an interesting, uh, an interesting thing. Yeah, well, yeah, some of them might be werewolves. That's true. Yeah, um, yeah. it could happen. It absolutely does happen. You know, people don't know it, but Hollywood filled with werewolves. You know, there was that movie Underworld that tried to really expose this, but you know, yeah. just didn't, no, nobody saw it. So. Nobody listened. Yeah. Nobody listened. Anyway, yeah, so, you know, we can look for, there's a bunch of movies, you know, Mission Impossible is just kind of the, the tip of the iceberg. There's a ton of movies, including Sony's Garfield, uh, <laughs> 20th Century's Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. That's a pretty that's pretty big. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the uh, Mad Max spinoff Furiosa. All of them oh, have been yeah. pushed. Uh, I really wanted to see Furiosa. I, really I, liked I, it. I will see Furiosa whenever Furiosa is released. Yeah, that hotly anticipated Fury Road sequel, prequel. I'm not sure which it is, but yeah. I think it's I'm, a prequel. I'm, I think they're doing yeah. uh, F- the Furiosa origin story. Yeah, I'm excited about that. George Miller, man, can't beat yeah, him. Can't, anyway, really can't, I, so. I think that we got to get to this interview here with Steve Cousins. All right, let's get to the interview. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. I'm here talking uh, in Toronto with Steve Cousins, who we had on before a couple of years ago for Station Eleven, the awesome show Station Eleven. My wife and I still talk about that show all the time. Thank you so much for coming back on the show. Uh, You've shot, uh, I believe it is Ethan Hawke's directing debut, Wildcat. It is not his directing debut. He's directed a few films before this. This is our second film working together with him as the director. We worked on a film called Blaze. Oh my God. I'm an idiot. I, I even saw that movie and I knew he directed it. All right. Well, I, I will always allow my idiocy to just flow on the podcast and, uh, you know, I'll wear it on my sleeve. No, it's all good. It's all good. So it's a really interesting movie, though. It's about Flannery O'Connor, who's someone who I uh, I read in college. It's a brilliant movie that it kind of infuses her life with it kind of 
cross cuts with her life and her stories where she and her mother and other characters from her life are kind of cast in her stories, I guess, in, in a sense, showing where Flannery O'Connor's stories were coming from. But also it's just like this portrait of Flannery O'Connor, who's dealing with health issues and cultural misogyny, like a lot of the stuff that was going on in her life. So tell me how I mean, I guess it was brought to you because you'd worked before with Ethan Hawke. But tell me how it was presented to you and what was the approach that Ethan Hawke had when he brought it to you? Well, uh, yeah, Ethan called me up and actually, it's actually Maya Hawk. It was her idea, the film. Oh, it's her idea to do it? It was her oh, cool. idea to do it, yeah. She, she produced it. And he had this idea of taking her short stories and sort of interweaving them and interlacing them with the, the story of her life. And so he called me up one day and he just asked me what I thought about it and would it work. And I actually hadn't heard of Flannery O'Connor. Oh, really? No. I always, I think it's easy to conflate Canadian and American culture, but she's a very American writer. Yeah, like there's a lot of Canadians that don't know Flannery O'Connor. I mean, there's a lot of Americans that hadn't, since I've been speaking with people that didn't really know Flannery O'Connor, they, or they've heard her name, but they didn't know her writing. Anyway, I was thrilled that Ethan called to shoot another film together. And so right away, I sat down, I read a bunch of Flannery's short stories, and I was blown away, really inspired and I was so excited to dive into that world and, you know, make something out of it. So Ethan proposed that we shoot down in, in Kentucky. He had started kind of scouting around down there, just driving around, I think, with him and Ryan, his wife, who's also a producer. You know, he was kind of looking for locations and just trying to get a sense of the landscape and to see if it would work. And he would send me little short video clips or photos, you know, and they were amazing, like the set pieces and some of the houses and the landscapes were really cool. I knew uh, I had a feeling it was going to be fun and interesting to jump on with. I don't know if this is a total side trip, but when I was watching it, the only movie I could think of that I'd ever seen that kind of did sort of what you're doing here was a Steven Soderbergh movie from the early 90s called Kafka that was shot by Walt Lloyd. It's a movie sort of about Franz Kafka, but it's also about Franz Kafka's stories. And it's almost like him caught in a Franz Kafka story, but there was a lot about it that was biographical and then there, and then it would kind of slide in. But I'm guessing that that wasn't, uh, that wasn't inspiration to you. Well, no, it wasn't. I, I love Soderbergh, but I actually haven't seen that film. It's his second film. I think it was right after Sex, Lies, and Oh, Video is it? Film. Okay, I've never seen it. It's like very, very early 90s. Well, that was something that, you know, Ethan, from the beginning, Ethan and I both really liked this idea of the main characters in the, in the short films being Maya or Laura Linney and kind yeah. of, you know, overlapping these characters so that you, you're not always, well, it kind of fuzzes the line between is this Flannery's real life or is this a short story? And that was something that Ethan and I talked a lot about is how do we how do we transition into that the world of Flannery short stories and how do we root ourselves in Flannery's actual story? And, you know, in terms of like creating a visual like the color palette and the plan for lensing it, this was anyway, my impression watching the movie is that when we would go into the stories, it would look a little different, but it didn't look like a world different. It wasn't like from color to black and white or from muted colors to super, super bright colors. Like it all kind of felt like one of a piece. And in a sense, as a viewer, I feel like what you were telling me was, you know, that her her reality and her stories, that there was some overlap in that. Was that the the plan all along? Yeah, we wanted to be subtle about that. You know, we, I think we both felt that we didn't want to be heavy handed. We, did, we wanted to 
let the viewer have the benefit of exploring that and not just saying, okay, we're here now, now we're here, you know, that we wanted it to be a little, yeah. you know, let the viewer kind of find it a little bit. And so we did actually shoot the um, short stories handheld and we shot most of the Flannery story more locked off, a little more austere, mm. except for the last story, we kind of combined locked off classic sort of push-ins and stuff like that with handheld to kind of just to blur those lines even a little bit more as you get further on into the story. And then in post, I played with the contrast of the short stories a little bit. And I also just played with the color just a little bit. But for the most part, we didn't intentionally, we didn't try to separate them too dramatically. Yeah, I, well, and, I, and I appreciate that. And, you know, now that I'm thinking about it, as you're talking about it, it's like I can see that uh, that it was more locked off and more controlled in her in her life. And I think as an audience member, too, I felt like it was training me. The movie trained me very quickly to be like, OK, it's, it, we're going to slip into it and it's not going to announce itself. There's not going to be a title card or something like that, which I which I thought was cool. Yeah, I think um, the, f- the first transition into the first short story i really love what they did with the edit when flannery's in the train station and she sees the one-armed guy and you see her look at him and then you cut to this one-armed guy in this other world and you come back and when you go to this other one-armed man in her short story you still hear the world of the you hear the sound of the train station so it's kind of a, it's a more oblique kind of cut into that world. And I thought that worked so well for the first time that we go there. And as you say, I think it, it does set it up right away. It's like, okay, we're, we're going somewhere. Something has triggered her. It's, it's a memory. It's an inspiration that is taking us into her short story. Well, it's fun about it, too, is that, you know, like Flannery O'Connor is like a writer that I was assigned to read when I was in college. And it brings them to life and makes them feel like like the one where the, the story where the grifter guy takes the woman's leg, like moments like that, you're just like, oh my God, these are, you know, it's like, uh, you know, precursor to Twilight Zone or it's not genre necessarily, but it, but there's like, uh, it has that kind of feeling like there are big dramatic movements in these short stories that she wrote. Yeah, they're, you know, for the time, like for the 50s, for a woman to be writing such dark weird yeah. material that's what was, it is it's super dark <laughs> it's super dark you know like yeah. like this like the guy stealing this woman's leg right that short story you know it was important for us to as it was in a lot of the short stories to just maintain because there is a humor there's quite a dark humor too that flannery yeah. had so i love that last image of you know him running across the field carrying her leg and you know his hat it's, yeah it, it, his it hat. is funny but it's the first take we did it, his hat blew off accidentally and he kept running and, you know, we couldn't get him back and he'd run like a quarter mile. Like, okay, wait, 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 no, God, we gotta oh, do it again. And then he came back and we were like, okay, we really love that the hat blew off. And he's like, yeah, no, I, I thought that, I thought that would be good. That's why I didn't turn around and get it. But it, it wasn't in the shot. So he was like, okay, I gotta turn around. So we did it again. And, but then, you know, try to recreate how to get your hat to blow off right at the right moment, right? So every time he came around, he had to kind of just lift up his head slightly to let the wind catch the brim. Mm-hmm. So uh, we got it. So let's back up a little bit and just kind of talk about your uh, cr- your creative relationship with Ethan Hawke and how the two of you collaborate together. And what does he bring to you when you guys are working on a project together? What are What's the process like with the two of you? Yeah, well... Ethan and I first worked on a film Born to be Blue where he was playing Chet Baker and it was a handheld film. So as you know, they always say it's like a dance, right? You know, when you're moving with characters and 
Ethan and I were often like being spontaneous and we really started to find a language then and we really realized that we had similar tastes. So that was really fun. And then, you know, it was a couple of years after that that he uh, called me to shoot Blaze. And I always say that Blaze was kind of like making jazz in that we had a framework for the film. And, you know, of course we location scouted and, you know, talked about everything. But once we got there, we really kept it loose and intentionally we just let the actors play more and we would just kind of not lock things down. And I personally really love working that way. And I think Ethan really likes working that way too. In Wildcat, we kind of just carried on with that. And it was nice just to build on the relationship that we had and that we had started to kind of develop. And, you know, Ethan is, he's worked with some great directors and he's been around for a long time, you know, and he knows, he knows cinema. He's not afraid to take chances. And he's also really confident and he's not afraid to, you know, if I've, if we showed up somewhere and all of a sudden a, a truck was in the way and a look you know, a direction we were supposed to shoot, we couldn't shoot and we needed to turn around. It wasn't a big deal. It's like, okay, if we can't look this way, what, what can we do looking this way? That's amazing. And as a DP, that's so liberating and so freeing in a way, because there's a lot of directors that sometimes they get locked into something and they can't see that there's another way and that you can be creative in a, you know, in another direction. So Ethan, I think is always just open and adaptable. And, you know, as a DP, it's, it just makes it more fun. So the, the question that rushes to my mind about this, why are some productions, why is it that sometimes the filming process is so locked into one direction if there is an option to do it this other way? Or is it very specific to the movie? I mean, like, I think your cinematography in this movie is freaking beautiful. It doesn't look like it's suffering for trying to be flexible or improvisational. It feels very grounded and in the real world and very intentional. I'm not dissing on any cinematographer who's like, yeah, we are lighting into this one tunnel and that's where the shot is because that's what we prepped. But why is it that that I feel like the other way is so much more common? It's it, I think, again, I think it just goes back to like I often say that um, like I learned how to light shooting karaoke videos when I first got out of art school. So I, I went to an art school in Vancouver and when I got out, there was a company there. They were shooting karaoke videos to send to Hong Kong. We had to do two two music videos in one day, you know, like the, the images that are behind you when you sing, you know. Yeah. I got hired to shoot these things and often we would show up at a house and we didn't even know. I had never scouted the house. I didn't even know what the power was. You know, we always had a plug so we can plug it to the dryer plug to get enough power. We had like a few lights. And I really learned how to to be flexible and adaptable and to be able to kind of like quickly go, okay, shit, this isn't working. You know, how do I do this, you know? And um, I didn't know it at the time, but that's really how I learned to light and when I learned to light. And I think I've just always carried that with me is just this... Yeah, I guess I, I will give something up in order that I can gain freedom with myself in the actors to move in the space. And maybe sometimes that means you go by a light that's a little brighter. You go underneath the top light that is, you know, an actual practical that's in the roof. But sometimes I like lighting that isn't always just beautiful. Like I like if someone's going down a hallway and there's, you know, pot lights that are kind of hard and give shitty shadows under the eyes. I kind of like that. I like where you can bring in realism and naturalism into the shot. I think this is all to say, I just, I, I'm always thinking in 360 and trying to make it work that way. 
No, I, th- I think it's a great thing for people to hear. It's a great thing for me to hear, honestly, because I feel like we all get walled into like, okay, well, here's our coverage. And so when we light this, this is what you're looking at. You're never going this way in this shot. Like, mm-hmm. And so to me, it's it's valuable to think about a legitimate, beautiful philosophy that allows for a different kind of flexibility. And I'm sure that there are trade-offs that you get from that, but it's not apparent in the finished film. And if I just may say one more thing too, I think also like, sure. you know, Ethan and I spent a lot of time looking at locations, you know, and I think when you go into a film and you have time at the beginning where you can go to a location, you can walk in there, you can really think about, okay, what's, where am I going to go? Where are the actors are going to go? Where am I going to go? Like, what, how are we going to make this house work? If it doesn't work, that is the time to try to move on to a different location or don't, you know, talk to the director and say, yeah, this scene, I don't know. It's for us to do it here. I'm going to have to do this, this, and this. And then if it doesn't work, go to a different location while it doesn't cost yeah. anything. And so because Ethan is so open, you know, sometimes we would show up somewhere and we'd talk about the scene and I'd say, well, you know, in order to shoot this church, and this did happen, it's like, you know, we really need to shoot this church at, you know, between one and four. Otherwise the light's going to be on the other side of the building. And we didn't have any lights to light the church. I had to use natural light. And so Ethan was like, okay, whatever we do, we know that we're going to get here between one and four. So you also need to have a production and a director that's going to be flexible like that, you know? Yeah, I mean, I guess that it would it would require that. But also to be flexible, like you said, like, you know, you get there and something's there that wasn't there when you scouted and you just, instead of taking five hours to get it moved out of your way, you just figure out another way to do it, which, you know, is kind of a very indie film way of handling it. And I feel like in a movie like this, which is so character driven and so acting driven, it makes sense that the performance can almost happen wherever you need it to happen. So it's just about that. But let's talk a little bit also about working in period, you know, because this is mostly 1950s, but also like 1950s. And then the stories feel like they're taking place 10, 15 years before that, although it's rural Kentucky. So you could probably go there right now and some of it still looks the same. But what was kind of your operating philosophy around period? You know, some sometimes I feel like people are making a period film that is a modern looking film that you brought a modern film crew to an old period. Sometimes you're evoking the way the period felt. Sometimes like if you're Ty West, you're making a movie that looks like it was made that at that time, you know, mm-hmm. what was kind of your operating philosophy about how to reveal period? Well, again, you know, Ethan had found all these great locations for both of us. I think we wanted a lot of texture. We wanted a yeah. lot of age it was more difficult than we thought finding period locations in you know surrounding area of um, really yeah this is the thing is it as we go on right those buildings that you think you know those shitty you know little buildings that are in the country little country houses you think that there are so many there's just less and less right so it this wasn't the kind of film where if all of a sudden we wanted to go one direction but there was a power line that we knew that, oh, okay, in CG, we can get rid of that power line, you know? So we, we didn't have unlimited funds and posts, so you could just erase stuff. So it took a lot of work. It took a lot of work to really go, okay, we can look here and we can look there, but we can't look there because there's a totally modern building. We can't do anything about it. So again, I think with time, Ethan and I just really, we did a lot of scouting and we really found what we needed to. So I would say that, you know, we went for for the period, everything was authentic, you know, the wardrobe and we didn't stylize anything that way, like having a, you know, modern, something modern in this older world. It wasn't stylized like that, but I I would say that the look we stylized just in terms of the color palette, I guess, and the texture. 
why I really love working with Ethan is just that he's very open. And you would think that most directors would be open and flexible and it's just not always the case. And so it makes it really easy to brainstorm, to come up with ideas and have input and, and be collaborative. And really that's, that's what it's all about, right? Do you think that that's like because he's an? I mean, like I think of the Ethan Hawke of Before Sunrise and and all the Richard Linkletter movies. Watching him as an actor and a performer, it seems like he's always very engaged creatively and kind of locked in. But that means he's taking energy from the people around him. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that is definitely his acting style too, and he comes from theater. You know, so he comes from a space that can be, uh, you know, more open to improvisation. And he's just worked with some great directors through the years, you know. He's seen how they work and what works and what doesn't work, you know, as an actor. And I think he's always conscious about bringing that into his own work. All right, awesome. Well, uh, so Wildcat will be coming out in the theaters. And uh, where else can people find your work if they want to check out your stuff, interact with you, etc.? stevecousins.com. You can see I have on my website, you know, that can direct you to different works. And that's C-O-S-E-N-S. Are you on Instagram or Twitter? I am on or any Instagram, Cousins Steve. Cool. Thanks again for coming on. I uh, can't wait to see what you do next. Thanks, Ben. I really appreciate the time. All right. So that was Steve Cousins. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Can't wait to see what you do next. Let's get Steve back on. And the next time I'll uh, make sure that I get the video part right. Or by then we've decided not to do video. <laughs> Uh, I don't think that happens since we keep getting people who say, yay, video and congratulations. And where, you know, why didn't you do this sooner? So, oh, I know. Makes me so sad. I did not get in this podcast game to be on camera. I'm telling you. Neither did I. (laughs) Really, really didn't. All right, Ben, you'll get never guess what time it is now. Uh, What time is that? Time to pay some bills. Uh, We got to thank our fine friends over at Aperture. Aperture, sponsors of this uh, program, makers of fine pieces of lighting equipment. They have two new lighting modifiers, two new diffusers, two new dome diffusers to be specific. They call them the Light Dome 3 and the Light Dome Mini 3. Bet you can't guess the difference between those two. Hmm. Is one smaller than the other? Exactly right. Mm. Smaller and less expensive. Of oh, course. I, I mean, sometimes smaller <laughs> is way more expensive. You never know. Not this time. I think it's 219 for the large and 129 for the small. And both of them have a new design. They seem to be more robust and more compact. They fold up smaller than their predecessors. And you can find them over at Hot Rod Cameras. If you're in the area in Burbank, you know, come into Hot Rod Cameras. You can check them out. If not, you can also order them from the website. But these are very, very fine light modifiers. And I think they're probably the best ones that Aperture has made yet. I will say that the way that you can really tell them apart at a glance is that the mini, the small, is about two feet across and the large, the regular Aperture Light Dome 3, is three feet across. So three feet and two feet. And it's got sort of a deep parabolic design. So it really sort of maximizes the amount of light output from the reflectors and also maximizes the distance between the diffusion material and your source. So it's doing a couple of tricks to try to make the light even more flattering than before. Softboxes are great tools to be able to uh, change the quality of light, especially since a lot of the lights out there that they are designed for uh, put out a pretty hard 
beam of light. So if you want to, you know, create something that might be a little bit easier on your subject, there's a lot that goes into making a good softbox or making a good bounce source or any sort of thing to reach your talent. And Aperture has taken uh, lessons learned from previous domes to make this, uh, you know, the best one they've made yet. So if you're in the market for that, know that the Mini 2 and the regular 2 still exist, but now there's a, a third version that's worth checking out. They're all about the same cost. So, you know, it's kind of up to you which you, you'd like to go with, but they're high quality products. It's, it's worth taking a look. And now, short ends. Ben, it is our short end time of the show. It's when we talk about our obsession of the week, if we've got something that we're all about. Is there anything out there that you're all about? What, what's going on with you? I stumbled across an article on IndieWire, but it's Christopher Nolan basically talking about the Taylor Swift Eras Tour concert movie and saying what an important lesson it is for theaters. And it just kind of got me thinking because Christopher Nolan basically, you know, like he's pointing out all the same stuff we've pointed out, you know, that basically Taylor Swift figured out an unconventional way to distribute her film. As I was corrected, it is through a distributor, but it's not through one of the traditional arteries that a wide release like this would usually go through. And Christopher Nolan basically saying that like people are underestimating the power of theatrical. And it really did make me wonder, can theaters bolster their business, especially as we catch back up to there being movies to go into the theaters by running more concert movies or running more unconventional stuff it doesn't it doesn't even need to be musicians you could have stand-up comp pat oswald could release a comedy special and put it in in movie theaters or sarah silverman you could definitely do big tv series launches you could do live theater events which they've tried to do in the past and it's been hard not impossible to get people to go see them in movie theaters but i feel like the taylor swift thing is showing the drum I keep banging about theatrical, which is that people want the communal experience. Will people show up for a communal experience for things that aren't movies? Taylor Swift has proven that, of course they would, and it's far from the first concert movie, but are we going to see more unconventional stuff showing up in theaters? So it's really, this article just kind of got me thinking about it. Christopher Nolan, obviously uh, somebody who knows his stuff about theatrical, and I think is one of the more full-throated proponents of the theatrical experience. And it's interesting, I just never thought I'd hear him talking about a concert tour of anyone in movie theaters, but really, he's such a proponent of the theatrical experience that, of course, he would get behind that idea. So it's just something I've been thinking about. How about, like, where, where do you land on this? I remember going to see a Netflix-sponsored launch of Ozark Season 2 at the mm-hmm. Arclight in Hollywood, and that was fantastic. That was like an extremely memorable experience, and it was so great to go into the season premiere of Ozark, the second season, with a crowd of fans, people who could not wait for what was going to happen next. And they had a really great sort of like reception afterwards. And I feel like things that are events, if the theaters get creative, there is no reason that certainly, you know, my my little local theater down the road here, they only have two screens, but If they wanted to do something like that, they have this incredible sort of like bar and patio and food sort of area, too. So it's like if they wanted to do like a big premiere event sort of thing, they could absolutely say like, hey, come to this eight o'clock premiere of whatever this TV series is and then stay afterwards for a whole event. They could charge extra. And I bet people would be into that because they'd get to network or socialize or hang out with other people who like what it is that they're there for just as much as they do or, Mm. you know, in theory. I think that there's a whole secondary market here that has been ignored for a long time. 
And I'm excited to see if Taylor Swift can really kind of kick off a new movement, because uh, how great would it be to, you know, make new friends and have a bonding experience over something at a theater that wasn't necessarily just a movie where, you know, hey, you know, movie's over, file out, new crowd comes in, run it again, collect your $12 or $15, depending on on where you are, and then, you know, have a nice day. We got to make space. What if they actually set, you know, did sort of like a Rocky Horror type of like, you know, midnight screening or did a thing? Yeah. And really turned it into an event. Maybe they don't want to start it at midnight if it's going to be a a, a two hour thing. But, you know, you get my point. I feel like they could plot something out. And people who are hardcore fans, if you got like a couple of drinks and some, you know, uh, a catered meal afterwards, I don't see a lot of people really turning up their nose at spending twenty five or thirty dollars to go have this incredible experience. Might be a lot of fun, especially if they pre-sold it and let people know yeah. about it. I could absolutely see someone like Alamo Drafthouse doing that. And I, for one, have spent time in the lobby of Alamo Drafthouse talking with other people after a movie before that I, I mean, saw that's there. the genius so, of Alamo yeah. Drafthouse and the the its founder, Tim League is that it's not just about going to the movies, but it's about the culture around the movies and about the, about what you do in and around the movies. So, you know, the Alamo Drafthouse here in L.A. is a beautiful facility. The theaters themselves are amazing. The food service is great. The food itself is great and totally worth it. But then, yeah, there's places to hang out when you get done with the movie. And if you were to go go see a movie with your friends or whatever, you could hang out they have a bunch of dvds they've got collectibles they've got t-shirts they've got a bar you could just chill you know you brought up something that i hadn't really thought about in a long time but like when we were teenagers there was a midnight movie culture that is completely gone and that was you know there were a lot of movies like george romero's dawn of the dead this is way before i was a teenager but like that movie didn't do as well in its theatrical run if i'm not mistaken as it did in its midnight movie run like it was Mm -hmm. something that was very successful as a midnight movie and when i was a teenager it was things like pink floyd the wall the rocky horror picture show of course which you can still probably find somewhere and uh heavy metal the cartoon and I feel like we've kind of lost a piece of that because, it, you know, again, it's like it wasn't about I feel like watching Pink Floyd the Wall at midnight. It was about I want to be around all the people who want to watch Pink Floyd the Wall at midnight on a Saturday and share that communal experience. And that movie would be sold out 10 years after the frickin movie was released. I, I feel like it's a there's a real opportunity there if theaters want to be the cultural crossroads for a group of movie lovers. It's absolutely possible if they want to take that on. But I think as the corporatization of theaters has progressed, where it's all about packing them in and moving them through and getting another one there, the idea of sort of what the original sort of movie palace is or what the special art house is, has been sort of lost. It's been corporatized and commoditized. And maybe some people just do want to watch a movie and and skedaddle. But uh, I think for the hardcore people, you know, there is a culture that goes around movies that they they want to engage with other people and have differences of opinions and, you know, talk about what it is by evidence of things like Comic-Con, which let me tell you, a huge portion of Comic-Con is movies. That's like, you know, it's mostly movies at this point. It's like barely about comics anymore. Well, they'd have TV. They have some other sort of nerd culture stuff in there for sure. But really, movies is is a huge part of it. And they're You know, there are other sorts of like movie conventions and things like that, but it's interesting. I think the reason that Comic-Con works so well for the studios and works so well for the fans 
is it's like the hardest of the hardcore all show up. It's a pilgrimage. It's a thing that they yeah. do. They 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 want to get their, you know, their movie geekdom on and that they're going to do it. So I think that if there were theaters that wanted to take a couple of risks and lean into this a little bit, I have a feeling that if they partnered with like uh, a catering company or they partnered with a restaurant, they could probably figure out a way to pay for it uh, and maybe provide a little bit of advertising or promotion for, uh, you know, a partner that they like. And really, the people might turn out for it. You don't need to have too many people to make something like that successful. And especially if they pre-sell tickets, they'll get an idea in advance whether or not people want to go see Princess Bride at midnight. You know, that that, that was a thing that well, was going I mean, on in, in Palo Alto I mean, like, for years. It's, yeah. it's easy for me to be in a bubble here in L.A. where we have, you know, at least two or three repertory house theaters like uh, Vidiot's and the New Beverly that only show legacy titles but a lot of cities and, have have that space though too yeah well I'm yeah there. well and e- like even where i came from orlando i used to work at the Enzion theater in maitland florida and they would show you know we we would do retrospective screenings of stuff like pink flamingos and stuff like that all the time and you know some of the movies that we would get would be like the umbrellas of cherbourg re-released or touch of evil so i do think that there's an audience for it i think that you do have to foster it i feel like the culture overall needs to be keyed into it you know back in the day it might have partnered with a radio station and that's probably got less power today than it did back then and there is just less local culture in a lot of cities but there's got to be a way to do it yeah anyway uh, that's a long walk we just took what is your short end this week uh, my short end this week is the SIMPTI Media Technology Summit. Now, most people don't know what SIMPTI is. SIMPTI is S-M-P-T-E. And the that people is people make time code. That is an acronym. And basically what they are is they're a standards organization. So I, I shot some footage from SIMPTI. I will give people a better feeling of this, maybe in a close focus in a, in a coming episode. But to give you guys all the little bit of a preview right now, this is essentially where the biggest nerds, or I would say a huge portion of the biggest nerds, and I do mean nerds in the most polite way, these are the technical geniuses who work for big studios and large, you know, manufacturers and just people who are really, really intrinsically linked inside the technology and uh, standardization process of the industry. So when you plug in an HDMI cable, that signal works. They're the ones setting the standards for people to match. So there is interoperability, you know, not only in, in, in between one company and another, but around the world so that when people adhere to a certain standard, Everyone knows they're looking at the same thing. Everyone knows they're following the same workflow. But there's really interesting cutting edge stuff that's always going on at SMPTE, including sort of pioneering strategies for like virtual production, strategies for, you know, uh, volumetric production, strategies for all of these new things, which are they have arrived and they've been here in the industry in one form or another for the past, you know, let's say 20 years. But they're really getting to the point now where it's like, hey, they can put forth the best practices. And when they say, hey, when you do it like this, you get these sorts of results and it's repeatable. The great thing about SMPTE is that it's, you know, it's engineers and it's engineers working quite often scientifically to actually say this is better and also stay away from this. And so the fact that these people exist and it's it's, you know, it's like it's a nonprofit organization. Oh, and, and here's a little bomb. Let's say you're a college student out there. Let's say that you're a college student right now and you're thinking, man, it'd be so great to have a volume, a virtual production stage at my school. 
Simti's got a grant for that now. If you're in college, what? yeah, if you wanted to have that sort of technology I, in I your could film go, program, uh, sign up for uh, LA Valley College for uh, you know the tetherball class. Can I get uh, a volume in this office? Uh, I don't think they'd put it in your what office. What if this office was a volume the whole time and I hadn't told you? Yeah, that, that's that's very realistic volume you got going there. Really impressed. But here's the the big point. I, there's a couple of restrictions. There's always a catch, but you have to have a Simti like student chapter at your school. I don't think it takes very much to actually get that going. So if you want that sort of, if you would like some money, if you'd like this to happen, I think that there's a few different manufacturers who have maybe like some older panels that they are probably working with Simti to try to get them out there to places. But the point is, is that really, really interesting stuff is happening in academia with this. And I actually saw a really cool presentation that one of the premier film programs in India has been doing incredible hacking of the tools that are being used here and finding new ways to put stuff together. And they presented this whole half hour long presentation complete with videos. And let me tell you, at, at Simpty, they love their charts and graphs and you know, oh, PowerPoint you know presentations. It. Yes, absolutely. And for each stuff. one, 10 spreadsheets. Uh, you know, I am not going to say that this event is for everyone, but for the really extreme nerds like me, for the people who, you know, this this is your livelihood. This is what you, is the type of crap that I do Monday through Friday. This is like this is the thing. I got to say, it's a, a fantastic organization. It's extremely inclusive and they get people uh, from all over the world to come and be part of this because it's really just about making everyone's jobs easier and lives better. And what kind of like noble pursuit is that? So I think I think that's really fantastic. And frankly, I can't wait in the coming weeks to now show some of the stuff that I put together there. So you get a little bit of a flavor. It's not going to be too long. It's not going to be all charts and graphs. You're not going to have to try to like learn or comprehend anything. But I'd like to give our audience the experience a little bit of going to this thing. I mean, it it costs money to go to this thing. I'll be doing my part to kind of spread the word out there. And if you are a highly technical person and you've never been to it, you should probably check it out. A lot of the topics are pretty broad, but everyone is very generous with their time. And if you want to ask questions and if you've ever been one of those people like, oh, you know, I want to ask a question, but there's only like two minutes and boy, I could never get that question. And everyone's there the whole like the whole time. And there's these great field trips that go on and you absolutely have the opportunity to interact with all the people who are doing this work and really get all your questions answered. So it's like there is a real spirit of generosity of free information exchange And, you know, in the world, I don't always see that happening. But I think that engineers in particular really like to try to help other engineers. They want other people to understand what's going on and how they're doing it and see if they can help others. So I think that's fantastic. That that's my short end. Sorry for you know veering off here into the in technical space. This part of this the great thing wait, about the show wait, is I get to not be listen to, yeah, people who can, listen to a, a cinematography podcast might be interested in technical things. I don't know. You know, well, you know, look, we we get criticized by the uh, the peanut gallery out there about oh there was no lighting diagrams and these people don't know what they're mm. talking about for cinematography. But let me tell you. Any sucker out there can go make a lighting diagram and that doesn't necessarily tell you much of anything. There's a whole lot of stuff I think is really, really important that people uh, actually get into. And I'd like to hope and think that we get into some of that stuff. And I would say the art, craft, philosophy and occasionally the science, the stuff that goes behind all this is actually fundamental and foundational to everyone's knowledge and potentially enjoyment of what it is that they're doing. So. So, yeah, I'll get off my soapbox now. I'm, I'm done. I'm all good. I love hearing it. So who should we thank this week? 
Hey, let's thank Alana Cody, who is busy hustling and grinding and trying to uh, get us set up with more interviews right now. Oh, boy. And, uh, we got some I, big I, ones coming up. I, I'm looking forward to it. We got to thank uh, Kay Zalatracci, who uh, made the music that you hear at the opening and closing. And oh, occasionally can I say something about Kay's? Congratulations oh. to Kay Zalatracci for winning Best Short Film at the Chicago Horror Film Festival, I believe is the festival. Uh, his film, The Everbliss Inn, won Best Horror Short at a horror film festival. Uh, let me tell you how unsurprised I am. That guy's so talented. I mean, really, if he hadn't won, that's what would have surprised me. Like, I'm sure he was there sure. with against a bunch of stuff. But yeah, you know, uh, well done. I was Kays. very, very excited for him. He yeah. uh, he sweated blood for that film. And, and it shows it, it really came out well. Spectacular. So glad to hear that. And we got to thank Ben Katz. Ben Katz, our editor. Thank you, Ben Katz. Thank you for, for cutting the show and uh, making sure that we don't sound like total suckers. Yeah more than any more than is necessary to get across the realistic idea of what kind of people we both are at, at least me where can people find you ben you can find me at benrock.com that's probably the best way to find me and uh you find all my social media stuff on there check out my reel directing reel i have recently put up a bunch of corporate work up there too you can look at that but you know learn everything you ever wanted to know about me Ilya. where can people find you they can find me over at Hot Red Cameras, hotredcameras.com. You can also find me over at LinkedIn. LinkedIn seems to be a place that people are reaching out, so you can find me there, Ilya Friedman. Do it up. All right, now, Ilya, you want to take us out? Thanks for listening. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening.